Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. And I'm Savannah. What was that? What was that? Hit it like you mean you, it, Savannah. You put it in shouty caps. It's in all caps. Hit it like <sighs> you mean it. Okay. <laughs> and I'm Savannah. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. and Supreme Court nominations, because even though Congress can't get its act together enough to pass some critical legislation to fulfill more of Biden's campaign promises, the ceaseless judgment of the media seems to be laser-focused solely on whatever Biden is or isn't doing at any given time. Fortunately for us, that provides a lot of headlines to highlight points of nuance and, well, you guessed it, the B-word. Oh, not that B-word, bias. (laughs) But before we get there, You may have noticed a new voice in our introduction. Everybody, let us reintroduce Savannah. Savannah, meet everybody. Uh, Savannah is (laughs) new to the Fireside team, although not new to Fireside. Um, You will remember her from our episode talking about um, Afghanistan during the uh, withdrawal. And uh, she is an incredible researcher. We're happy to have her. Uh, Incredible story. Um, And she is joining us as a producer now. So like I said, she'll be helping us with research. She'll be attempting to help us wrangle our (laughs) schedules, which has been incredible for Robin and I to witness. And I'm sure a nightmare for Savannah up until this point. Um, And then she'll be joining the show at times to bring fresh perspective on the complicated issues that we talk about here. Um, So... Savannah, if you would like to to re-reintroduce yourself to the folks, um, now is the time. Okay. Well, um, hi, everyone. I'm obviously Savannah. Um, I have a day job as a network engineer um, for the Navy. Uh, I, I'm not in the Navy, but I work for them. And I lead a team of engineers doing unmanned carrier aviation. So that's my day job. Um, I'm also a mother to a super cool kid. I'm a writer of a blog called Bamboo and Bananas, and I'm the new CEO of a Bamboo and Bananas LLC. So, um, yeah, uh, they're expensive. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to see where Fireside goes. So, mm-hmm. Are you allowed to talk about 
why you are why you formed that LLC and what the big news coming down the pipe is or should we not leave that oh we could totally talk about it because um right uh, so I formed uh, bamboo and bananas uh, for multiple reasons I am stepping my toe into writing editing and production obviously um, but I am the author of a book that's coming out um, around July of this year called uh, Corporal Cannon, because uh, <clears throat> my last name is Cannon. Um, and it's about my time as a female Marine in Afghanistan. And you can find it on Amazon and you can pre-order it. Um, but yeah, I essentially formed um, the company so I can c- separate the business expenses for book tours and stuff like that. And um, also maybe protect myself legally from getting sued. So uh, yeah. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Um, you know, celebrity things. No big deal. No big deal. She just she's super famous, and we're here still trying to to be cool kids. Um, the book, I was fortunate enough to read uh, a draft copy of it, and then the latest copy of it. I believe probably some changes since the last time I read it, and I'm very much looking forward to reading it again. Um, highly recommend it. It is a hard read, and I don't want to sugarcoat that. It's an excellent read. Um, but yeah, it's very challenging, and I, I think everybody should read it um, to to gain the perspective that it brings. Um, so definitely, definitely check that out if at all possible. But this isn't the Fireside Breakdown Pitches a Book podcast. So <laughs> not this episode, maybe. But I do maybe. appreciate it. We'll get there. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll probably we'll talk about summer. it nonstop because I'm actually very, very excited about this whole thing for you. So I'll probably well, thank you grow more excited as as we move on. Yeah. So what are we actually doing today? Yeah, I think it's time to get to those high-powered discussions that we promised everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the only way to kick this episode off is to start with the biggest story of them all, ice cream. <laughs> That's yes. right. Our first topic is the breaking scandal that Joe Biden, U.S. Senator for over 30 years, two-term VP under President Obama, and current President of the United States, is unfit to serve due to his overwhelming dependency on sweets. Yes, the man who has been involved in politics so long he watched Watergate unfold in real time has been crippled by that most delicious of dairy delights, ice cream. We would love to thank The Daily Show for compiling the following hard-hitting reports from Fox News. So please prepare yourselves, dear listeners, this could be disturbing. President Biden took a trip off campus today to an ice cream parlor. He just exited Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams in Washington at 225, emerged with two scoops of what appeared to be chocolate. The president yesterday went out for ice cream. Ice cream, ice cream. Two Good. scoops and a yeah. waffle cone. All I, all I have to do is run a country of 350 million. Having the time to stop by, get some ice cream. This as, of course, chaos is erupting across our own nation and now abroad. Is it appropriate at this time, Vladimir Putin, watching this commander-in-chief chomping on ice cream? Why is Putin doing this? Because he knows Biden's weak. Biden would rather have ice cream with somebody rather than stand up for Americans. Joe Biden's weakness, his feebleness, his love of ice cream. We've got inflation through the roof, and the White House gets ice cream. Even in the most dire crises, there's always a little time for ice cream. The world is falling apart thanks to his weakness, and Joe Biden gets ice cream. Look at that, a double scoop there, old Joe. Joe is not fit to serve. U.S. presidents 
Don't just hang out at ice cream parlors and then call it a day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That is not normal. It's also not normal for a grown man who's working a full-time job to go out on a Tuesday afternoon in January to get an ice cream cone. And a double scoop, no less. Who gets ice cream in the winter? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, 25 degrees in D.C. Truly a catastrophe. I just want to say the uh, the composition, the musical, all choice choice by uh, the Daily Show there really drove home the magnitude of the situation. Just absolutely. The I mean. the the military drums, the music, the sad French horn at the end. How else were we supposed to get the idea of just how significant of a situation this actually is? No, sorry guys, we had to. This story is just too good to pass up because it's the perfect example of how detached reporting has been from Fox News during this presidency. I mean, make no mistake, dear listener, all of these stories were being played completely straight. This wasn't tongue-in-cheek or good-natured ribbing. These were serious reports meant to undermine public trust in the president because I guess what competent human being eats ice cream on a Tuesday? Everybody knows ice cream's like a Friday thing. Right? Every day. You only eat ice cream when you don't have anything else you possibly could be doing. Yeah, Yeah, no, Savannah is, of course, speaking the the plain truth. Ice cream is whenever I can get it in my mouth. That's (laughs) that's the day for ice cream. Um the Biden Biden does, however, I will I will say this. The man does love ice cream. Like when I was Secret Service, like working at the vice president's residence. There was always ice cream in that house. And uh, I loved it. I thought it was great um, because when I get older, I'm pretty much going to make it my mission to always have ice cream available because it's incredible. Like, do they um, also have, have lactate? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think everybody needs lactate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just me. I got it. Um, okay, but perhaps a little bit more seriously, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you might recall that Biden swore at a uh, at a Fox News reporter, um, Peter Ducey. And this was at the end of a White House event where uh, Biden spoke about reducing uh, prices for American families. And Ducey asked if Biden thought inflation was a political liability for the midterms. And Biden's response was a very dry it's a great asset. More inflation. What a stupid son of a bitch. End quote. (laughs) The stupid son of a bitch was included in what Biden was saying. Um, Now, Biden was speaking pretty quietly. And it looks like he, like to my eye, it looks like he wasn't actually answering the the Ducey's question. It was more of um, a quip to himself. But the microphones were still on and they caught every word. (laughs) Naturally, this led to a pretty immediate reaction from media outlets across the political spectrum. And just for the record, Biden called Ducey within an hour and apologized, saying it was, quote unquote, nothing personal. Yeah, which I find pretty difficult to swallow. Um, I don't know that calling anyone a stupid son of a bitch could be anything but personal, but it's not up to me to determine how these guys felt about what happened. Um, You know, I don't. 
I don't think it was appropriate for Biden to insult Ducey, right? Even if I understand the impulse because it was an obvious, like, duh question. <laughs> um, but it is a reporter's job to ask questions that the person who is answering would rather avoid discussing. At the same time, Ducey has long been antagonistic towards the president. He explicitly asked questions in a way um, that make Biden look bad. And that's not really, an, that's not an opinion. Like we have some other gems from this guy. Um, right. One of the questions that he asked was, so you said that the president is never satisfied if the people don't feel safe. Does he know that after a year in office, people do not feel safe in this country? Uh, all right. Okay. Um, you guys have been pretty aggressive countering COVID misinformation. So what do you guys think about COVID misinformation coming from the Supreme Court? And so uh, Sonia Sotomayor's false claim that over 100,000 children are in serious condition and many on ventilators. Yeah. So both of those questions from Ducey. The second one, they're really illustrating what we mean uh, when we say his job is to make Biden look bad. Because uh, it's actually a fair question. Uh, Justice Sotomayor was um, basically making a point about COVID and said, you know, 100,000 children are in serious condition and many are on ventilators. And that's not backed up by the data. Like that's that that statistic is not it's not a real statistic. No. Um, it's just it's rich coming from a guy who works for Fox News. You know, like. You're worried about misinformation now of all times. And then the first one, when he's asking about, like, are you aware that after a year in office, people don't feel safe in this country? The way he asks that is inherently misleading because it makes it sound like everybody doesn't feel safe in the United States. And like, I mean, I feel pretty safe. Right. And and just the question like, well, are you aware that people don't feel safe? Like, What's the the answer to that is, yeah, and I'm not satisfied. Like, the, it is an if-then type yeah. situation. It's not, nobody but, ever came out and said, everyone in this country feels safe. We're done. Check it off. Yeah. But that's the point. Like, the point is he's playing for a very specific audience, and that audience are the consumers of Fox News. And they 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 want those sort of like, ah, gotcha questions, even if they're not really well thought out <laughs> or yeah, the goal is to get a sound clip safe. yeah it's ex that's, that's exactly right it's a question for social media really like so we can clip that into a nice 15 second chunk and throw it up on instagram or twitter or whatever and get that red meat out to the base that said at the end of the day i think there is actually a, a a silver lining there's a good part to all of this um and michael grinbaum from the new york times is the the art he wrote the article that sort of put words to what I was feeling about this, um, and that that is that this exchange could serve as an example for all of us, uh, because yes, Biden fell for some bait that Ducey can pretty much be guaranteed uh, to toss out when he asks a question. That's not that's not the greatest, um, but the aftermath of this whole thing is equally as important as the event itself, and. That is basically that Ducey laughed it off. His phone call with Biden, by his own account, was focused on moving past it. 
and Biden did the right thing in calling to apologize. It was a good example of a civil outcome from an uncivil situation. And it's how adults go about working through their differences. Will Biden and Ducey have some friction between them in the future? Yes, undoubtedly. But the more important point is that they will have a future. Because they both chose to work for it. Although I am a little bit, um, I, I am a little suspicious that maybe the ice cream uh, scandal isn't some sort of payback for the stupid son of a bitch comment from Fox. But I mean, it's fun, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, nobody, nobody, including us, is really taking that seriously. Well, I see, but that's the thing. There are definitely people taking the ice cream scandal seriously. I guarantee. I no, I don't need to guarantee. I've already seen it. I've already seen it in memes being used against Biden. And it's it was um a picture of you know rage uh, not rage comic style. There's uh, those very exaggerated like line drawings of people's uh-huh. faces. Um there was one that it was a obviously uh, a person going through a very rough time, right? They were all disheveled and and looked uh, gaunt and with the five o'clock shadow they weren't put together they're struggling um and he and he was that that person was asking something to the effect of uh you know hey can we get some help and then the next frame the next panel the next image uh was biden eating a double ice cream cone a double scoop ice cream cone and saying hey did you know we got a cat and it's like, <laughs> right. I mean, I get it. I get it. Like, that's fair. But I guess my my point is, I find it very hard to believe that the producers at Fox News, the people who put those things together, were trying to do anything other than poke fun at President Biden. Like, oh, that well, like, that's my perspective. Yeah, I mean, it was it. it it is clearly meant to undermine the um, authority of the office. Because, right. right. But like anything beyond that other than, it, it, you know, they weren't trying to do anything other than making Biden look silly, look like a buffoon. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's what the 24-hour news cycle has produced is think pieces on ice cream instead of actual news. And right? that's true. And it's something that uh, I think we need to do an episode on really is like, yeah. How 24-hour news has shaped how we consume news. Just a because bunch of I, people sitting around talking. I mean, I know, forbid, we go a whole <laughs> hour without a scandal. Just, God. Uh, who does that? Nobody cares. Nobody, Nobody cares. cares. Shut up. God. Uh, speaking, uh, yeah. speaking of okay. the 24-hour news cycle and all the controversy, we should probably get to the real and actual point of this episode. Which is, more C words here, the consternation and confusion over President Biden's promise to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. Uh, So some context to set up the conversation. At the age of 83, Justice Stephen Breyer, who is unrelated to a purveyor of President Biden's snack of choice, uh, has announced his retirement from the U.S. Supreme Court, which will give President Biden his first and maybe only shot at a Supreme Court nomination. 
Breyer has been an associate justice since his nomination by President Clinton in 1994, and in his 28-year term as a justice, he has seen over 524 cases. He takes an interpretive position that strives to adhere to the original intent of the founders, and he's made rulings and written opinions on civil rights, privacy, unions, and so much more. So Breyer has decided that it's time to step down in a Democratic presidency, perhaps to prevent a repeat of what happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. If you all recall, Ginsburg was known for her liberal-leaning rulings, and she died during Trump's Republican presidency, which enabled Trump to appoint a conservative judge, Amy Coney Barrett, to replace her. This particular development on the court has resonated in the public's conscience because Ginsburg specifically scoffed at retiring under Obama when she was pressured to do so, asking who the president could have could have nominated this spring that you would rather see on the court than me. <laughs> um, I would strive to have her uh, <laughs> confidence. That's <laughs> nice. Right? <laughs> like, I mean, I would, but there's nobody, there's nobody better. The OG <laughs> notorious... RBG. <laughs> Her death under a Trump presidency influenced the court to have its current six to three conservative leaning, according to the Martin Quinn scores, which uh, is an independent scoring system which ranks the opinions and rulings of the judges on a negative six to positive six scales of conservative or liberal for each case that they reside over or have opinions for. The political leanings of the highest court in the land can obviously have a huge impact on the daily lives of Americans. Abortion, gay marriage, and so many other recently touchy topics are decided by this court. So it makes sense that Breyer would choose to step down while a Democratic, who tend to be more socially liberal, president can appoint a liberally leaning replacement to keep a Democratic death grip on those three seats instead of possibly losing the presidency to a Republican in 2024, suffering a debilitating heart attack, and opening up the chance for the court to turn into a 7-2 to conservative ice cream party. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's so much power in that last sentence there i just need to let it sit for a minute okay so who is on the short list for president biden to appoint as Breyer's replacement this is where the controversy comes in president biden has made it very clear that he intends to install the first black woman on the supreme court it was a promise he made on the campaign trail and this is his opportunity to uphold that but there are a lot of folks out there who are very vocally opposed to this idea, seemingly on principle. Ted Cruz said on his podcast, the fact that he's willing to make a promise at the outset that it must be a black woman, I gotta say, that's offensive. You know, you know, black women are what, 6% of the population? He's saying to 94% of Americans, I don't give a damn about you. You are ineligible. Well, I mean, honestly, Ted Cruz, 94% of Americans are not eligible to sit on the Supreme Court. So, shut up. <laughs> Senator Roger Wicker made the point that, um, and this is a quote again, the irony is that the Supreme Court is at the very same time hearing cases about this sort of affirmative racial discrimination while adding someone who is the beneficiary of this sort of quota. God. And then finally, Senator Susan Collins has said, it adds to the further perception that the court is a political institution. Cool. This is the first time I've actually heard these quotes <laughs> out loud. 
they're the worst. They're so wildly offensive to to, to me, <laughs> and maybe the not to everybody, but like every time, yeah, like, <clears throat> dude, why don't put that in context? We've had the Supreme Court's been uh, in existence since like 1790, and we didn't have. We didn't have a female federal justice, let alone Supreme Court justice. We didn't have a female federal justice until 1928. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a female Supreme Court justice. I mentioned this later until 1930. Uh, <laughs> what have like the Supreme Court has for decades? Uh, wow, wrong word for literally over a century told half of the population that you are ineligible. Right. And it's only been since the 30s that there has been any sort of progress towards making the Supreme Court look like the general population that it presides over. And right. you're getting a... F- right. And, and we'll I'm, talk about, like... Y- I, we'll, we're, we're jumping ahead. We're jumping, we're jumping ahead. way far ahead. It just <laughs> offended me and I had... Mm, moving on. The overwhelming theme here. The overwhelming theme here is that it is somehow unfair to other candidates to employ this kind of intentionality based on a person's identities. Um, but <laughs> Biden is not the first president to take identity into account. Honestly, he's not even the first to announce it. Uh, law professor Renee Nake Jefferson, author of a book called Shortlisted Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court, made the point that presidents have long picked nominees with typical professional experience while also focusing on a unique aspect about who they are. Exactly. Uh, one of the stories that we found was Richard Nixon. He specifically aimed to gain ground with Southern voters by looking for Southern nominees to replace Abe Fortas in 1969. And then, later in his presidency, at the encouragement of his wife and other influential women at the time, he even considered a list of women to fill an unexpectedly open seat on the Supreme Court. Eventually, he actually settled on one, um, a a California Court of Appeals judge named Mildred Lilly. Uh, After interviewing Lily, Nixon's chief of staff called her a goddamn jewel, pointing out that she was tough, able, personable, absolutely clean, a solid conservative, a Democrat, which remember back in the 60s, these were still conflated, and a Catholic leader. I mean, there are a lot of identities in there. And the, the first hiccup in that nomination, I mean, Lily was on track to be the first female Supreme Court justice. Uh, but there were some hiccups, and the first one was that Chief Justice Warren Burger, who was also nominated to the court by Nixon, um, delivered a letter to then Attorney General Mitchell telling him that there, quote, was no woman qualified to be on the court. Ridiculous. And he put his money where his mouth was. He backed up that position with a provisional resignation should Nixon actually nominate a woman to the court. Then, the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on the Federal Judiciary, on which presidents rely for opinions on nominees and their qualifications, and which also was entirely comprised of white men, leaked to the press that they had evaluated and found Lilly not qualified by a vote of 11 to 1. 
So that effectively killed the conversation about what could have been the first female justice on the United States Supreme Court. Oh, I wish I, I had think- been in that room just to hear what was said. <laughs> I know. Apparently Nixon like blew his top over Justice Berger and was like, fine, I'll take his resignation. I'll take it right now. Um, But when the ABA committee leaked to the press that she was not qualified, it kind of took the conversation out of everybody's hands. Yep. I do want to correct something really quick because I misspoke earlier and said the first female Supreme Court justice was 1930. That was wrong. They were born in 1930. Yes. It was considerably later in the 80s. my bad. The first federal judge, first female federal judge was 1928. That one is right. But there was no SCOTUS, uh, female SCOTUS, um, until the 80s, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, a very little bit, actually. Because in 1980, as a presidential candidate, I lost, I lost my spot. Uh, Ronald Reagan vowed to appoint the court's first woman. Like, as a candidate, that was his promise. He was wrestling with the fallout of his position on the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, which we have talked about, we have talked about, actually, the ERA, um, and losing ground with female vote voters across the board. Um, in, a, in a 1980 Washington Post article, Reagan is quoted as saying, uh, I am also acutely aware that within the guidelines of excellence, Appointments can carry enormous symbolic significance. This permits us to guide by example, to show how deep our commitment is, and to give meaning to what we profess. One way I intend to live up to that commitment is to appoint a woman to the Supreme Court. And then Sandra Day O'Connor was confirmed in 1981. Uh, yeah. Isn't that when you were born, John? No. <laughs> I was born in 88. I'm considerably younger. (laughs) I'm not considerably younger. Even Donald Trump said he'd nominate a woman to take Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. And now Amy Coney Barrett sits on the high court. Appointing someone to the court based on one or a combination of their identities or characteristics isn't new. One of the primary themes of outrage And the responses to this proposed nomination is the idea that Biden would not choose the most qualified candidate regardless of their other identities. It's meritocracy at work, or at least the idea of it. But way back in our series on affirmative action, we talked in depth about the problems with believing that America, or any part of it, truly functions as a pure meritocracy. The idea that there is one objectively most qualified candidate for this seat is flawed because of how the court itself functions. You have justices with a variety of constitutional perspectives, unique life experiences, and even very slightly different education backgrounds. They were nominated by a variety of people for different reasons, and they use all of those to inform their decisions from the bench. Do they all fulfill a certain checklist of criteria? For the most part, yeah. But there isn't even an established official list of requirements to be a Supreme Court justice in the United States. Right. The Congressional Research Service, who we love as a source because they put it, they put so much stuff out, um, they published a report in late January that outlined the characteristics that influence a president's choice of nominee. First, political considerations. The report notes (laughs) that most presidents will be inclined to select a nominee whose political or ideological views 
appear compatible with their own. The report notes that presidents are, for the most part, results-oriented. This means that they want justices on the court who will vote to decide cases consistent with the president's policy preferences. Somebody needs to tell the CRS here to avoid alliteration always, because that was a lot of P's in a row, (laughs) even though we really like them here. Um, The second uh, qualification is professional qualifications. Um, Presidents look for a high degree of merit in their nominees, not only in recognition of the demanding nature of the work that awaits someone appointed to the court, but also because of the public's expectations that a Supreme Court nominee be highly qualified. This is where the ABA committee comes in, evaluating candidates based on their professional qualifications, such as integrity, professional competence, and judicial temperament. And then finally, integrity and impartiality. Ideally, the report says, a president will choose a nominee who he or she believes to be a person of integrity able to approach cases and controversies impartially without political prejudice. This was a big topic of conversation during the Justice Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings because of her personal religious beliefs and claims that her previous rulings reflected a personal political agenda. Right. And then nominees are also subjected to significant background investigations as part of the nomination process. We saw this with Justice Kavanaugh. So the argument that any black female nominee presented by President Biden would be chosen solely on the basis of her race and gender and inherently less qualified than any other nominee doesn't really hold water here. Looking at the list of potential nominees currently being circulated, there's nothing official here, there doesn't seem to be any indication of that of that kind of tokening happening here. Like most of the recent successful nominations, the list is filled with circuit court and state court judges. Highly educated, highly qualified. Some of the names on that list, um, the unofficial list, include South Carolina uh, District Court Judge Michelle Childs, the California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, the D.C. Circuit Judge um, Katanji, Katanji, thank you, Uh, Brown Jackson, uh, the District Judge um, Mimi Wright, Circuit Judge Eunice Lee, uh, Circuit Judge Candace Jackson Akiwumi, and Attorney Sherilyn Ifill. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. Um, And Sherilyn Ifill is the only candidate uh, being discussed that's currently not a judge, but there is a precedence for successful nominations of attorneys to the court. Um, She actually just uh, left the position for the NAACP, um, which is why people are wondering, like, hmm, why did she leave? And so that's why her name is on this list. It's um, it it lines up uh, possibly. Okay, but um, these are not underqualified, uneducated women, regardless of how those opposed to their nomination are presenting the situation. However, that doesn't mean that Biden handled this in the best manner either. Right. I I think we all have our own opinions about the way that President Biden chose to make this announcement, or I should say his PR team chose to make this announcement. Yeah. 
The fact that Biden outwardly expressed wanting to nominate a, a black woman comes off as less than ideal. Is he stating this because he has a specific person in mind um, who happens to be a black woman or because he wish, wishes to seem woke and like appeal to um, a portion of his uh, constituents? So uh, women have been on the Supreme Court since Republican Sandra Day O'Connor um, was on the court in 1981. And black women have been kicking butts in the court for over 100 years. Uh, this type of announcement by Biden can put whoever is nominated at a disadvantage because when someone's chosen based uh, because of, quote unquote, affirmative action, um, people tend to ignore their actual merit and hard work. And I want to make sure that everyone knows I'm not saying that that's what this is. It's not an affirmative action placement, but the people who I've spoken to about this, that is the vibe that they get is that whoever is selected was only selected because she was black, not because of all of their other qualifications. So we should keep in mind that any person Biden selects will have earned their position and it's not based on the color of their skin. Biden seemed to want to get liberal cool points instead of simply announcing the nominee and letting it be the first black woman to be a Supreme Court justice, which which I would have been, I would, excuse me, I thought that would have been cool if he had just um, let it happen to be the first black woman and let the conversation unfold from there. I think that would have been cool. But anyway, um, while having a black woman on the court is a fantastic milestone, this affirmative action, quote unquote, word choice seems to put the words, she just got it because she's black in the mouths of neckbeards everywhere. And boy, do I hate when that conversation comes up. Yeah. Oh, poor little neck beards. Um, I, I actually got all the beard removed from my neck earlier today, uh, specifically for this. Zero neck, zero neck beard. So that you, there's here. no way you would fall into the neck beard category. You won't be able to confuse me for that. Fair. No, sir. Solid. And I hit all of my fedoras. So, um, so I, as you may have noticed earlier, I have feelings about this one. So, my interpretation or my reaction to what's going on is a little bit less, um, shall we say, to the point than, than my esteemed co-host here. Um, what? Uh, I may have gone off a little bit. This is, I think, the first, like, oh boy, I just scrolled through it. I think this is the first rant I've had in a minute, uh, so I'm going to try to bring it in under uh 30 minutes here <laughs> as i address this because i because we we talked about this we had like production meetings for the first time in in fireside breakdown professional history about this episode which was really cool thanks savannah but and, and, and robin for scheduling it like thanks savannah for making us do that <laughs> um we uh but it was great it did it brought up a lot of these points um because I don't have direct exposure to a lot of people who necessarily think that way. But it, my, my frustration has been running over about the reactions to this because I feel like the a lot of this thinking, this type of thinking that this is affirmative action, that she's only getting it because of uh, wanting to appeal to a certain demographic is more a reflection of the internal biases biases. Uh, of the people who hold and espouse those views than than reality because cons consider that that those who are making these accusations uh, that are making these claims 
they have they they're also making some pretty serious implications uh, by doing it. There have to be some other things that need to be true or that they need to believe, uh, even if they don't uh, explicitly believe it. They must implicitly believe it in order for these accusations to come from a place of good faith. Now they could be making them from a place of bad faith which is entirely possible, but that's a whole different thing. But if they really believe this, then the first, like, the first red flag this flows up for me, uh, throws up for me, wow, is that all the white dudes who have been nominated to the court from 1790 until 1981, when Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female Supreme Court justice, were somehow the most qualified for the position despite the massive non-white, non-male population in the United States who would have also been eligible for, for federal positions for Supreme Court positions. And that's pretty long hell of a streak. Okay, so I'm trying to think about how to word this properly. And I, I mentioned this in the, the show notes, uh, or not the show notes, but the, the comments in um, the pre-writing. Um mm-hmm. I don't know, John, if you've ever experienced this. Um, I'm pretty sure Robin might have experienced this. Um, have you ever walked into a room and get told you're only here because you're a white male? No, because white males have historically owned the power structures in this country. Right. The The reason that this stuck out so much to me is because I've walked into a room and I've gotten positions and people told me I only got them because I'm a woman. Right. Um, and yeah, and it's, it's, it's really messed up for, um, well, for the PR team to, to say that and seem to kind of put the person, um, who does get nominated, not necessarily on the defense cause they shouldn't have to defend their merits, but mm-hmm. they have to act like they don't hear that and act like their merits are not being ignored. So it's kind right. of a super touchy subject for myself. So yeah, and I've been th- I, I have been thinking about that, and you are right in that this announcement and the way it has been made is going to make people say that they're oh she got it because she's black, she got it because she's a black woman. Um, my frustration in this comes from the fact that the same people who are espousing those views uh, have previously kept their traps shut when it benefited them politically, such as with Amy Coney Barrett. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this is even a problem is an issue because in a perfect world, it shouldn't matter. If, if it shouldn't matter, if I say it's an African-American woman, it shouldn't matter if I say it's a white dude, it shouldn't matter. But the reality of the situation is it does matter. And what is upsetting to me and what I am actually ranting against is the fact or the way that people feel this way think. And I'm, most upset or I'm most ranting against the biases that they hold uh, because absolutely the way the announcement was handled is going to cause problems. And it's not the, it's not ideally how such an announcement should have been handled in our modern society. Um, but in an ideal society, it shouldn't have made any difference whatsoever. And that's what, that's what irks me is oh. that, No, that makes total sense. You want to change the internal biases of um, this esteemed country. (laughs) Yeah. It's a hell of a goal, John. (laughs) We've been cracking at it now for almost two years. Yeah, it's kind of the whole goal of this podcast. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, uh, you're right. 
ultimately, this is going to negatively impact whoever makes the nomination. And that's a that's a damn shame. But they, I'm sure they have experienced that throughout their entire career. Yeah. And it won't be anything new to them, Mm-mm. which is also a damn shame. Right. But, uh, yeah. Didn't mean to interject into your rant. Please continue. No, it's fine. You made a great point, and I'm glad you did, and it's why we have you on the pod now. Um, I will continue, though, <laughs> now that my head of steam has died down, and I will communicate a little more effectively. The other thought <laughs> that, is, that, this, that these objections bring to mind, that these, the, these, the Ted Cruises of the world ugh, bring to mind, is that it, they are at best willfully ignoring the history or the previous intent or presidential intent for filling Supreme Court seats. And we talked about that a little bit. Um, there has been a, a political motivation behind these nominations for a long time. And it bothers me that the people who are protesting now, like I just mentioned, they didn't really raise any concerns when Trump said he was going to nominate a woman to fill Ginsburg's seat because he did the same thing almost point for point, in my opinion, when that happened. He said on September 19th, 2020, during a rally in Fayetteville, North Carolina, he specifically said, I will be putting forth a nominee next week. It will be a woman. And less people argue that that statement was different because he had already chosen a candidate and was simply teasing the announcement. That same day, he told reporters that he had a list of 45 people from which he had formed a short list of potential nominees, which I doubt I think the Federalist Society actually nominated the person and Trump just rubber stamped it, but that is a different topic. So he was still actively deciding who he was going to put forward. Well, who's and, to say that that list wasn't all women? So his statement would have been true, and he also could have been deciding. Well, that's what I say here in two paragraphs <laughs> about Biden. <laughs> okay. So that that's the point. Yeah. That's the point. If we can extend that sort of credulity to 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 when Trump did this, like, why is this suddenly a problem now? When when we were discussing this point earlier, um, you. Or, yeah, you brought up the point that you kind of felt like this was just a political play, that this was for points to appeal to his constituency Mm -hmm. or not necessarily his constituency, but a Democratic constituency that he wanted to vote for him. And I'm not I'm not personally convinced that there is a good argument to be made that this one is a political maneuver and Trump's wasn't. And therefore, people who are upset are upset because Biden's was a political maneuver and they weren't upset because Trump's wasn't a political maneuver um, because Trump's statements were made at a campaign rally less than two months before Election Day in 2020. And I'm of the opinion that that makes it a pretty politically motivated maneuver. Mm-hmm. Like, So... I I hear that argument, and I'm not saying, that isn't to say that Biden's wasn't a political announcement, and I'm I'm not trying to say that. It just seems intentionally myopic for Biden's announcement to be decried as this bad thing when the very same people who are upset about these points were cheering on Trump when he did something almost exactly the same. It benefits them. Right. 
Yeah. And it, it makes me wonder what has changed. Oh, I was going to say that me bringing this up about this point for specifically Biden, uh, I wasn't paying attention when Trump was doing it um, years ago. So it might, yeah. <laughs> I might have had the same no. like, oh, this comes off kind of like it's it's kind of, of, yeah, comes kind off politically. Of, yeah. But I can't say that uh, I would have had that exact reaction. Uh, but clearly other yeah. people that have a lot of um, pull in the government uh, have completely different reactions to um, Trump and Biden. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And and don't mistake that I'm saying that you believe these things or you said these things. You just feel the point. Yo, I know. I feel like really attacked right now. So. <laughs> no, you just raised a very good point. But like the people who do, who are saying these things are people like uh, Mitch McConnell. Not, I don't know if he said something to that point, but they are like him in that they were paying attention when mm -hmm. Trump was doing something similar. Oh, yes. They were very much paying attention. Two years ago. Right. Exactly. Um, so... That makes me think, you know, Biden, the thing that Biden did different is that he very specifically said black woman. And it seems that that in and of itself is enough to make the announcement feel different and therefore negative to this crowd of people. The specificity of the announcement has led some to believe, like Cruz, that the most important part of the nomination will be the candidates' race and gender, like we discussed. But Biden and his staff never said that they that they weren't picking someone based on their merit. They said that they were going to nominate a black woman. Well, it begs I, us to think that, you know, if people are reading between the lines, they think that black women haven't earned the merit, which is horrible and crappy. Exactly. It makes it... It, it forms this mental picture that there's basically a group of, of people, Biden's advisors, the presidential team, whatever, and they're compiling a list of black women first. Mm -hmm. And then they are trying to determine who from among that group of black women would be a good Supreme Court justice. Well, who's just, well, I don't know, like, if they are trying to represent america a little bit more who's to say they didn't select or make a list of just black women and then go based off of merit well that's where i think it's backwards that's what I, i'm getting ready to say you're so good at feeding me softballs for this savannah <laughs> my next my next paragraph so so why does this announcement why does it lead to that assumption that a that a black woman wasn't the most qualified in the crowd of overall nominees of white women, white men, black men, all of that, right? Why did people, myself included, Oof. myself included, why did we initially have that same thought process that this nomination weighed black woman more heavily than the other qualifications? Why did we think that this nomination is based solely on gender and race first? primarily. It's strange to me because when I review the announcement, I don't see any evidence that Biden's promise was to nominate someone based solely on those factors. He said, I will nominate a black woman. But my brain, and I will own this, my brain started out with that sort of, oh, the black woman is the primary qualification. And that's a bias. That's a result of where I was raised, the, the, the 
people that I was raised around, the politics of the area that I was raised in. There's no reason that Biden at all couldn't have made their shortlist for possible nominations during the campaign prior to making this promise and found that they had several great candidates who were also black women and saw the opportunity. There's no, there's no information, we have been given no statements to indicate that that's not what happened. Right, we don't, we don't know that they haven't us. made their decision already, that they didn't mm-hmm. make their decision before he made that claim in the campaign. Right. It's our own bias that's telling us to think, oh, wow, he started with black women and then found the puzzle piece to fit in this particular mosaic. And... <sighs> Is, I don't think that's what I don't think that's necessarily what happened. I'm sorry. What were you going to say? It sounds exactly like my family with when I was saying like the the neck beards um, saying like, well, of course, it's just because she was black. That just sounds like my entire upbringing, not specifically my family, but just the people around me in Georgia. That was just how they spoke and how they viewed and how they mm-hmm. spouted their um, opinions and Yes. Uh, Same thing with Southwest Missouri. The number of times I heard, well, if you were black, you could get a scholarship. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was uncountable. And I was, in fact, told that I was going to have to work harder because I was white and therefore would need to do more in order to get a scholarship. Did you get one? I I did get one, actually. Yeah. It was for acting. (laughs) As somebody who really would rather have not had to work as hard as they did to get a scholarship, I can say that they're not just handed out on a silver platter if your skin is brown. This just doesn't what? doesn't happen. I was lied you were to. Lied to. I am shocked and appalled at this I information. Know. I actually had to have academic merit. It's dumb. I don't even know how to apply for a scholarship. <laughs> I went a different route. <laughs> uh, you you went the hard route. <laughs> Anyway, I do think this is an opportunity. I do think that what they saw was that they had an opportunity. I think, I would, I choose to believe rather, that they had a thought process similar to what I'm going to lay out here, which is that the purpose of a justice is to interpret the law and ensure that these laws are constitutional, that they're fairly applied. Basically, that a particular law isn't disproportionately impacting any particular population. Now, in order to do so, the justice has to put themselves in the shoes of the typical person. You have to think from the perspective of a typical person. And in legal terms, we often refer to that as a reasonable observer. For example, whenever a police officer was doing something that they were in court for, would a reasonable observer assume the same things that the police officer did with a reasonable officer or similar. There's a million different variations of the phrase. How would the reading of this law, how would the application of this law impact the average American citizen? And is that in line with the guidelines that we have in the Constitution? That's the job description. What do you do as a judge? The only way any person can, or a justice rather, the only way any person can imagine what an average person is, however, is to draw on their own experiences. Try as we might, 
we can't understand what it means to exist in this world as something that we are not and never have been. And that's a limitation. We can imagine it, sure. Like I said, I got a full, I got a scholarship for imagining what the world was like for people with different experiences than I had. And, you know, I had to bring those people to life. But the the reality of the situation is that I never understood really what it was like to be any of those people. I could only define it based on my own experiences and then the lens of the, the play that I was given. And in the same thing, I can only imagine what it's like to grow up as a woman based on my own experiences and what I've seen and experienced and what I've learned uh, from the women around me, right? And apply that in the best way that I think is possible. But it doesn't mean that I understand what it is to be a woman. And that is different. That is different than a full comprehension, which means that our laws and their constitutionality have primarily been interpreted through the lens of a white man or a panel of white men for 230 years with limited exceptions, very small exceptions, all things considered. Our courts have not reflected what the U.S. actually looks like, what the average U.S. citizen ever experienced, ever. Even now, as diverse as this court is, it's nowhere close to reflecting the demographic breakdown of the United States. But understanding that, we can begin to think about the nomination of a black woman in a different way. Because we know that all of the people on the list are qualified candidates. They have sterling histories and deep experience in the United States legal system. And I would feel pretty comfortable in saying that pretty much everyone that was considered for the Supreme Court position had impressive resumes. Everybody, all the, not just black women, but everybody had it. So if we start with the assumption that all of the potential nominees started in relatively the same place with respect to their curriculum vitae, right? What sets them apart? What makes them a good and just addition to the Supreme Court? What would serve the American citizen best. And I argue that it is adding someone with a different lens, a different perspective of the law and of life. And in that scenario, to me, it makes a lot of sense to decide that your nominee should be a black woman, because only a black woman knows what it is like to be a black woman in America. So everything else being equal, we all have great qualifications and knowing that we want our court to reflect America a little better, a little more accurately. In that case, being a black woman becomes a qualification. It is not the only qualification. It is the thing that out of all of the field of qualified individuals, it's the thing that sets you apart. Not that any of that thinking will change the, what is going to be said about her, that she was only chosen because she was a black woman and not because of all of the sum total of her merits, right? But in the end, the real problem seems to me to be the crowd whose bias leads to the sort of reverse thinking that they started with black women and then tried to shoehorn in 
a Supreme Court justice out of that crowd. The end result from that sort of mentality, that conclusion, it isn't really supported by the information we have about the nomination process at this time. Despite the fact that people may feel like this is some sort of affirmative action thing, at the end of the day, we can look at the nominees' resumes and we know that they're all qualified. Their race and gender has just become a plus and, as Robin taught me about in our episode on affirmative action. And that's my thoughts on this process. And now that I have dominated this conversation, <laughs> I'm going to shut up. What a typical oh. white male thing to do. Huh? I know, right? No, don't worry. I just put mine in bullet points because I didn't have time to write <laughs> saw, all the words. I saw that. I felt so bad. I was like, oh, man. No, <laughs> it's so fine. Bad. I have I have all the thoughts. So I just bullet pointed them. No, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up the plus and because that's a perspective that I, I don't think a lot of people... Um, come to this conversation with the idea that a person's identities would be an additive factor to their qualification, not um, either a detractor or in the case of a meritocracy, uh, completely irrelevant to the conversation. Um, I'm coming at this from a PR perspective first to start with. Yes, I also am coming at this from an identity-related perspective, and we'll get there in a minute, but to talk about it from public relations, right, because I'm not what I would consider to be an expert like we talked about last week in our episode, but it is the area of education that I chose for myself. I'm a communicator. I have a master's degree in public relations, um, and this is not how I would have handled this situation. Um to Savannah's point, like the way that this was framed set the conversation up for this kind of response, this pull it out of the woodwork, affirmative action, complete outrage. It honestly feels to me like it was designed to do that, that this is hydrogen peroxide in an open wound, right? We're drawing out these awful responses and considering the timing and the upcoming midterm elections and that everyone is starting to campaign for them. Um, I'm not sure that this wasn't timed this way in order to draw that kind of ire into the public, right? Make more Republican senators look like racists right before the midterms, thus potentially pushing more moderate conservatives a little bit closer to the blue side maybe impacting their ability to to get reelected. It's it's not the worst plan from an Olivia Pope gladiator white hat perspective, right? That's all I'm it's saying. It's a weird one. It's a weird plan. Public relations yeah, is weird though. Like um and I it's so hard for me to explain that to people that sometimes you have to think about this. Like mm-hmm. you take the risk of making this seem like an affirmative action hire. But at the same time, you may have the potential benefit of calling out a lot of really racist crap from people like Ted Cruz. Do we need (laughs) a reason for them to or to give them more opportunity? Is that like are they lacking for opportunity? uh, It's it's less that they're lacking for opportunity, but more that it's been a hot minute since anybody said anything Mm. racist in the public eye. Right. (laughs) Like the 24 hour news cycle buries stuff so fast. Yes. And we, what we can't, if I'm, if I am a, a blue party public relations strategist, 
we cannot afford to go too long with the public thinking that people like Ted Cruz or um, what's her name? Bobert, Lauren, Lauren Bobert are Bobert. reasonable, right? We cannot let people think that they're reasonable for too long because we will then forget that they are unreasonable. So I'm not saying that that was the plan, but I'm also saying it wouldn't have been the worst plan if it was. Anyway, plus and? It's a plus and, right. Um, but but it's it's actually not a plus and in this situation because I still think that they handled it wrong. If it yeah. were mine to handle, I would have come out of the gate with my shortlist. And I would have made a big-ass deal about their incredible qualifications. I would have compared them to current justices and previous fan favorites, right? If we can get a black woman up there on the list and compare her to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that would be amazing. Just really talk them up. And then, then you take the time to point out that plus and the benefits that their life experience will bring to the bench. You talk about diversity and how we're finally going to have a court in which America can see itself reflected. Give it the Kamala Harris treatment, if you will. That was an incredible narrative that I felt like was really strong and helped drive the success of that ticket, is that they were able to leverage that little black girls could now see themselves reflected on a vice presidential ticket to the highest set of offices in the United States. That's how they should have framed this one. Leave it to other people to point out the race issue, but then make them contend with those qualifications first. Force them to try to make the argument that these women are less qualified than anyone else. Because if you lead with their qualifications, you have to get through the qualifications to get to their identity. Yeah. And if somebody chooses to make it about identity, then optically, they're choosing to make it about race. Right? Mm -hmm. So if, if I was strategizing, that's how I would have handled this. Nobody asked me. Mm -hmm. sure. Jen Saki did not call me. Kamala Harris did not call me. They can call me next time. It's fine. I'll let them. I'll give them some advice. But... Well, that's uh, kind of what I said at the beginning. Like, uh, yeah. it would have been cool if he, they had just announced it and everyone's like, oh, it's also a black woman. That's interesting. But, right. yeah, I don't know. I, th I can I can fully see what would happen on, like, Fox or Newsmax if the shortlist came out and it was 12 candidates who were great and they all just so happened to be black women. Right. And Fox just, like... Field day. Ugh. I... I would love to see the scramble in that production room, in that research room, <laughs> right? I So I guess from, from an identity perspective here, do I agree with the specificity of this decision? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. I do. And it's not just because I am a Black woman, but because I understand the value of seeing these highly qualified Black women elevated to positions of significant authority where they can allow their experiences to positively influence the way that our laws and our constitution are being applied. Like President Reagan said, we have the opportunity here to make a symbolic decision. They're going to bring consideration to the court that has never existed there before. And they're going to get the opportunity to be the first justice to interpret the constitution from the perspective of two identities that were largely left unconsidered when the document was written, that have been largely left unconsidered 
throughout the history of its application and who are largely the most marginalized group in the United States. Black women trail in everything from net worth to education to health outcomes, right? We see that this is a group of people who have been largely left behind by progress in our country. So the idea that we would have a Supreme Court justice who can then actively and proactively look at our Constitution and work to apply laws more equitably from that perspective, like that's a big deal. That is a BFD, so as not to make this a spicy edit. So yeah, I 100%... Um, I 100% agree with the specificity of this, and I I also can't ignore the fact that this is a direct reminder at a time when um, like a lot of the campaign promises that President Biden made on the trail had to do with COVID and resolving things and a lot of things that he hasn't been able to fulfill. So their making of this announcement when they did, I think again, from a PR perspective, was an opportunity to say, hey, hey, we're doing a thing. We're doing a thing we said we would do when he has not been able to do that otherwise. Well, I think it's also important to note, yes, it's amazing. First black woman on the Supreme Court. Awesome. Um, America is also not just black and white. So uh, I'll be interested to see how the court um, ebbs and flows in the future with being able to represent more of America. Right. And I think, you know, we have had our first male Supreme Court justice, um, black male Supreme Court justice, and we have seen Jewish identities and Latin American mm-hmm. identities and Italian identities. And um, I, duh, I'm trying to remember if we had an Asian man on the Supreme Court at one point. It's just, it, it would be nice to have a mix of everyone at the same time um, who could properly represent both the law and um the makeup of America. Right. Yeah. There's there's never been any Asian, Native American, or Pacific Islander heritage uh, on the, at least publicly declared heritage on the Supreme Court. Right. What do you mean at okay. least publicly declared? So, I mean, there are people who can pass as white, for example, mm-hmm. and it, they might find it uh, beneficial to maintain the perception that they are white in order to avoid stuff like this bullshit that's going on. Yeah. Okay. I mean, a perfect example of this is the kind of conflation of being Jewish and being white, because Mm -hmm. you can be ethnically Jewish, you can be religiously Jewish, you can be a combination of both. Um, And so using Jewish as a descriptor can lump you into the white category, or if you choose to, it can lump you into an ethnic group, um, which also sometimes is considered white. It's we should talk about that, but it's complicated. We need to get a rabbi. Yeah. Anyway, if you, dear listener, think <laughs> that we have uh, missed something entirely about this nomination, if you agree with us, if you think that we just don't get it, let us know. Firesidebreakdowns.com. You can find our show notes. You can find all of our episodes. Um, you can find a way to leave us a message, and we would greatly appreciate that. You can also find our links to our social, Facebook, Instagram, uh, primarily those two. That's where you want to find yeah. us. And then, uh, you know, we, we throw up uh, occasionally other writings, important things to consider on there as well. Uh, we'll probably link to Bamboo and Bananas on there at some point. So you can find uh, Savannah's 
blog from our website. It is a compelling read in many different facets, <laughs> and I will not uh, color your journey any other way. <laughs> Interesting. It's incredible. All right. It is incredible. That said, if you take anything from this episode that we need you to do, any call to action, please, please, please leave us a review. If you listen on Spotify, you can just click five stars right there on our page, um, which is cool. It's a new feature. Mm -hmm. Or you can use our link tree or uh, our, yeah, our link tree to find a way to rate this on your listening platform of choice. Time for some good news. Um, this is our first released episode of Black History Month. Last year, we dedicated the good news section of every episode during Black History Month to a historical feature or a piece of news related to that conversation. And we think we'll do the same thing this year. So we're going to hand it over to Savannah to tell you a really cool and totally relevant story. All right. So I found out this nugget uh, during the research this last week. Um, so the first black woman to be accepted to the Supreme Court bar was Violet uh, Anderson in 1926, almost a hundred years ago. Um, she was born in England in 1882 and moved to Chicago with her family. Um, she became a court reporter, attended the Chicago Law School in 1920, which is the same year that women's right to vote was ratified. To give you some context, the social uh, climate of the times of being a woman and how uh, they were allowed to have opinions in um politics and the public. So um, she opened her own law practice, became Chicago's city prosecutor, and then was accepted to the Supreme Court bar in 1926. Um, being accepted at the bar requires appointment to the highest court in um, the individual state that they're practicing law in. And they also need to have exemplary professionalism and dedication. So um, something that is kind of cool, and I'll tie back into what we discussed in the episode, is she argued in favor of the Bankhead-Jones Farm Tenant Act of 1937, which allowed federal government to take damaged agricultural lands, like, you know, land that's been overworked um, and not rotated properly, and rehabilitate them into national parks, national grasslands, and Bureau of Land Management lands. Um, I don't know if you all have experienced those, but they're free to stay on, which is kind of cool. Um, this act also provided long-term loans to sharecroppers and farm tenants to allow them to purchase their own farming equipment so they could work and manage their own farms. And so if you think about how having someone who uh, represent a, represents a portion of the American public, um, I think she was doing a huge justice for um, her fellow black Americans because the people that were coming out of slavery could not afford their own equipment. And so she argued in favor of this act and it was passed and it helped benefit sharecroppers and um, other people to be able to work their own farms. And so if you look back at representing others and helping out others, I think uh, um, Miss Anderson successfully did that. Uh, so she, her hard work and perseverance in the legal field impacted Chicago and the United States of America just a few years after women were allowed to vote, which is kind of cool. So black women have been impacting the courts for quite a long time. It's pretty incredible. That also is BFD, man. Oh, she was pretty cool. She was a big part of the um, sorority system and like other stuff. So, The more you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad to have learned it. Thank you very much, Savannah, for joining us and for being on the episode. And 
I really enjoyed having you here for this whole process. Enjoyed? That sounds like past tense. <laughs> I did enjoy it. And then we recorded this thing and you were like, John, what about this? And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> no. It's opinionated women. No. I, I look forward to enjoying it in the future as well, Savannah. All right. Well, thank you all for having me. Want to take us out, Robin? Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about all of these crazy controversies. We look very much forward to being back with you next week to talk about something completely brand new. We don't know what yet. It'll be an exciting surprise for you and also probably for us. Um, Until that time, though, we urge you, even with all of this craziness happening, to do your best to take care of each other. (laughs) 